when Deborah and I were first dating, which is a little bit ago now as the, the years roll on, we had that experience that I think many young couples early in their dating experience have of, of wondering, what exactly are we doing uh, in, at least in America, we had the, we used the phrase having the DTR, determining the relationship. You know, at some point along the way, you need to figure out what you're actually doing uh, together. What, what is this relationship that, that we have? And I, actually, I think I knew. I didn't know for certain, but pretty early on because I saw Deborah, and I, just on sight, I said, Lord, I'd like to marry that woman. I saw her uh, on stage. She was playing bass in the worship band at the church, and we were uh, at uh, John Piper's church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I thought, she's cute. She's a musician. I'm a musician, too, and she's got to be reformed because we're at this church. And uh, so, But that's a, that full story is a story for another day. But I kind of knew right away, uh, where I wanted things to go, and uh, it only took a year and a half, I think, uh, to to get there when we were married uh, from the first time I think I saw her. So, but anyways, at some point you need to determine the relationship in a much more serious way. As we turn to the Book of Exodus, as serious and as sacred as marriage is, it's really important to know and determine the relationship that you have with God. And in God's case, he's the one who gets to determine the relationship first, not us. And the book of Exodus is all about God setting forth the parameters for the relationship that he would have with his people. God is defining the relationship that he will have with his people. And the principal thing that they need to know and that Egypt and the surrounding nations will need to know is that he is the Lord. And they shall know that I am the Lord. If you would turn with me to the inside cover of your worship folder, I have an overview of Exodus listed there for you on page 7. And let's look at this briefly together before we get into the, the text. So on page 7 of the worship folder, uh, the melodic line, again, we use that. I use that phrase of David Helms, who's a scholar in the States who teaches on how to study the Bible. And the melodic line is just like a symphony. You have a series of notes that forms the basis for the whole work. And it ties the whole work together. And in Exodus, the the melodic line uh, is, I've articulated it as follows. The book of Exodus is all about God defining the relationship with Israel as his covenant people. Exodus picks up the narrative from Genesis and for the first time, reveals the personal name of God, Yahweh. And I've given you a note here in English translations, whenever you see the Lord in all caps, that uh, reflects where God's personal name, Yahweh, is used. 
and it's a fairly ancient tradition to uh, transcribe Yahweh as the Lord out of reverence to not misuse or overuse the name of God. So we see that in our English translations with all caps, the Lord. And in Norwegian translations, it says Heron in all caps, uh, from my understanding uh, as well. So uh, picking up here, the Lord's glory then is revealed in three key locations as he shows himself to be the deliverer, the lawgiver, and the God who dwells with his people. So I've printed that out for you in the worship folder so you don't have to write it down. This is a a little bit beefier melodic line this morning, but it's all about God defining the relationship and revealing himself as Yahweh, the deliverer, the lawgiver, and the God who dwells with his people. When we study a whole book or just any portion of scripture, it's important to know the structure, that is the literary structure of the book, because that will reveal the emphasis, what the author wants to emphasize. And in Exodus, it's structured in a really cool way. It's structured with three Uh, location or geographical venues where God displays his glory. Uh, It's structured first around Egypt, and then secondly around Mount Sinai, and then thirdly around the tabernacle. So Egypt, Sinai, and the tabernacle. And you can see that reflected here in the uh, brief literary outline I've included for you. In the first section, We're in Egypt, and we see the glory of the Lord as deliverer. In the second section, we're in Sinai, and we see the glory of the Lord as the lawgiver. And then in the third section of the book, we are at the tabernacle. It's still in Sinai, but now we focus on the location of the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord is the God who dwells with his people, not a God who dwells way off in some distant place that we can't reach. He dwells in the midst of his people. So that is where we are going this morning. We're going to look, and I'm going to give you an overview of the book of Exodus as we continue our walk through the Bible and an introduction to the Holy Scriptures book by book. We are going to look at uh, this book according to the three sections this morning. So the the three main points of the outline are going to be the main points of the message this morning. So first, let's look at Egypt, the glory of the Lord as deliverer. I'd like to catch us up to speed a little bit as we come into the opening pages of Exodus. Last week, when we were in Genesis, we spent a fair amount of time dealing with the intersection of faith and science, looking at the creation narratives. What, is, what are the opening uh, chapters of Genesis teaching about creation? How does that relate to science? And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you didn't hear that message, or even if you did and you want to review that. But today, as soon as we come to Exodus, we are also dealing with the intersection of faith and historiography. Did these things really happen? Or are these made-up stories? And this week, I'm not going to take any time to talk about that, but I would encourage you to watch a documentary series called Patterns of Evidence, which lays out some very compelling evidence for the historicity of Israel and Egypt, as well as 
the Exodus. And there are other Christian scholars who come from different angles on the subject, but I have personally found that to be a very helpful documentary. We watched part of it as a church some time ago, but I would encourage you to uh, look that up as you we think about the historicity of these events. And both with science and history, something that I have observed as a Christian as well as a pastor is that people are looking for an out with God. They're, they're looking for a reason to not believe in a way to where they can almost, you can't really make your conscience feel good about it, but kind of make yourself feel good. Well, I know this isn't true because science says dot, dot, dot. Or I know this is true because history professors have said, or archaeologists have said dot, dot, dot. But when you study science and you study history, there are many, if not more, compelling reasons to believe than to not believe. But maybe you know somebody who's wrestling with the faith, or maybe you yourself are, and I would encourage you there is, there's to study earnestly, because there is no, no problem in the Bible, uh, no issue in the Bible, no hard saying of the Bible that there aren't good answers for, if you're willing to consider them and think about them. But in Genesis last week, as we kind of spent a lot of time in faith and science, we moved rather quickly in the third section, talking about the gospel that was first revealed in the, after the curse. And then the gospel revealed to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then we follow that covenant series. All of a sudden we find ourselves in Egypt. Let me just tell you quickly how we got ourselves there. So God promised Abraham offspring and land, specifically the land of Canaan. And yet Abraham and his offspring Isaac and his offspring Jacob all wandered about the ancient Near East and the land of Canaan as sojourners and strangers. And as the book of Genesis progresses, a great famine comes on the land and they have to go to Egypt. And by God's grace, uh, it sounds twisted, but by God's grace, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they hated him and were jealous of him. And Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt. But God used that event and Joseph tells his brothers that at the end of Genesis, that what you designed for evil, God designed for good. And the Lord raised up Joseph to a place of great power to be the overruler on behalf of Pharaoh of all of Egypt and institute Joseph's famine policy to take care of the land of Egypt. And that drew all the nations to Egypt to come for food. And Joseph is there. And Joseph dies there. His bones are there. There's actually good evidence of his tomb being there as well today. But over the course of time, as God blessed Israel, the Egyptians began to grow jealous and they were enslaved. And that's now where we find ourselves at the beginning of Exodus. The Lord blesses and multiplies Israel, his promise to Abraham that if you can count the stars in the heavens, 
so you will be able to count your offspring, is coming to pass. And so Pharaoh, in these opening chapters, and I'm just going to walk us through this first section together, enslaves them and oppresses them. But the more that he enslaves them, the more they increase and multiply. Tertullian, the early church father, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the, of the church, the thing that spreads. And the same thing was happening here in Israel. The more they in, in Egypt, the more Israel was oppressed, the more they multiplied. And over the course of time, the Lord promises deliverance. And he calls Moses who himself was an Israelite but raised up as an Egyptian and who had fled in the desert because he killed an Egyptian who was oppressing an Israelite, he sees a burning bush and he approaches and turn to chapter 3. I want to read a little bit from chapter 3. Not only... For the first time and the only time, to my knowledge, in the Bible, we see a God revealing himself in a burning bush, but also for the first time, God reveals his personal name. His personal name. And I want to read that with you. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to this great sight. Why, the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then a little further down in verse 13 as Moses is wrestling with this call that he's being given. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God reveals his personal name. You cannot have much of a relationship with someone if you don't even know their name. And here as redemptive history is moving forward, God is revealing more and more of himself 
to his people. And for the first time, God has revealed his forever memorial name. And I want you to think about that for a second. Yahweh, meaning I am what I am. I am has sent you. We read these ancient texts and these historical figures who are historical figures seem almost mythical to us in the sense that it's so long ago. It's such ancient history. And yet the God who bears witness is the God who is who just as much was is then as he is now. It's hard to say. I am. God is without time and without being. I'm sorry, not without being. He is without time in his personhood. I am what I am. And we're about to see a power clash between the great I am and the Pharaoh who held himself up to be a god. The most powerful nation of the day. So Moses goes on, he returns to Egypt. And he gives the Lord's command to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go. So what does Pharaoh do in response? He makes life even harder for the Israelites. He makes their life bitter, as the text reads. They had to make bricks without straw. But God promises deliverance for his people. Turn over to chapter 6. Verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, as I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And he goes on to make the connection to Abraham and Isaac and to the land. And then in verses 6 and 8, we see the Lord say, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Everything God is doing, he is guaranteeing based on his 
name. And as we come to chapter 6, we see a phrase that is restated in various ways hundreds of times in the Bible. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell in the midst of you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell in the midst of you. That phrase or part of that phrase is used hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible. And it's like God, as the husband, comes to the wife and says, This is my name. I don't know if anymore you can say, You will be my wife. I think you need to ask nowadays, but God doesn't need to ask. You will be mine. I am yours and I will dwell with you. It's all based on God's name. I am. I will do these things because I am. And so the power struggle begins as Moses goes back to Pharaoh and says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and harden his heart through ten plagues. Through water being turned to blood, through frogs, through gnats, through flies, through livestock dying, through boils, through hail, through locusts, through darkness. And before the tenth plague, a warning that the firstborn would die if Pharaoh does not comply. And in the midst of that threat, God's people also need to do something lest their firstborn die as well. And we see the introduction of the Passover and that a lamb must be sacrificed and the blood of the lamb must be painted on the doorposts and on the, the threshold, on the top, on the lintel, almost as it were in the shape of a cross. Blood, blood, and blood. And when the angel of death would pass over the land and would see the sign of the blood of the Passover lamb, God's people would be spared. Of course, Pharaoh does not comply, and so the tenth plague plague comes, and the death of all the firstborn in the land who were not marked by the blood of the lamb were killed. And then finally, Pharaoh drives them out and tells them to go, and the exodus is underway. And they institute the Passover for the first time. This Passover links us to Christ. For example, when John the Baptist beholds Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is our Passover Lamb. Even as he fulfilled his work in his first coming during the Passover by being crucified on a cross. And so the Red Sea is now before the Israelites in Egypt because Pharaoh has changed his mind, is coming after them. And God's people, what do they do? Do they stand firm in faith? No, they grumble. They say, have you led us out here, Moses, to die? The first of many grumblings of God's people. But the Lord uses Moses 
to part the sea. And I want to read a few portions of that scene. Just turn to Exodus 14. In verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharioth, between Migdal and the sea, in the front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. And so as I said at the beginning, at the end of each of these main sections of Exodus, Yahweh reveals his glory. Yahweh reveals his glory. We read in verses 13 and 14, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord, Yahweh, will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his Horsemen. And after these events unfold in verse 30, we see, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And the theme of glory then gets picked up in Moses' song in the next chapter. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Israel had to see salvation to see the glory of the Lord before they believed in him and in his servant Moses and the glory of Yahweh as the deliverer of God's people is revealed here in the first part of Exodus and will be taken up by our Lord Abraham's offspring many centuries later We turn now to Sinai, the glory of the Lord as lawgiver in the second section in chapters 15 to 24. Now that Israel is delivered, where are they going? Well, they're going to the promised land. I think the average Israelite had the idea that this was going to be a quick and easy journey, but it was not. For no sooner had God delivered the Israelites, I mean, imagine it. You just walk through every man, woman, child 
to use New Testament language, was baptized into Moses by following Moses through the Red Sea. You just saw the Lord destroy the most powerful army in the world. No sooner had the Lord done that than they get thirsty and they start to complain. And they grumble. They grumble. And so the Lord, through Moses, turns bitter water into sweet water. He provides bread from heaven. He provides water from the rock. He defeats Amalek, one of the great powers of the day as well. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, says, Moses, you can't do the ministry all by yourself. You need some helpers. I feel that a lot. I'm very thankful for Peter, and I'm praying for more. You know, I feel that way. And then, finally, they find themselves at Mount Sinai. Turn to chapter 19. Turn to chapter 19. And just read a few uh, verses here, 16 to 20. On the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord gives the book of the covenant to Moses and it begins with the moral law. In verse 20, God spoke all, or sorry, chapter 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. He's defining the relationship right here. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now he's setting down the terms in the covenant. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love you and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day shall be a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And when Israel saw this, did they rejoice? Look at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So the law is revealed to the Lord. And then he go or to Moses, and then he goes on and gives laws about altars and slaves, basically about communal living, laws about restitution, social justice, and most importantly, laws about the Sabbath and festivals and then some instructions about conquest of the land of Canaan. Uh, I want to make one brief note here before I end on two things on the second point. One, when we think about the law today, part of the law is removed. So a helpful way of thinking about God's law in the Old Testament is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civic law. So the moral law as we learn from places like Romans 2, uh, was written on Adam's and Eve's heart. And so when we think about the Ten Commandments, in our Westminster theology, we talk about there the moral law is summarily comprehended. It's summarized. But that's not the first place where the moral law existed. The moral law existed from the beginning. And Paul argues that point in Romans 2, that the law is written on our hearts. He's talking about the moral law that we have in our conscience, but then was clarified on Mount Sinai. But then we talk about the ceremonial law, all of the sac- the whole sacrificial system, the way that man would make themselves right with God at that time through the priesthood and through sacrifices. Those things are done away with under the new covenant, because Jesus is the great high priest who made a once-for-all sacrifice. And you can read the book of Hebrews to learn more about that aspect of the law. Then also, the civic law, the rules specifically for Israel as an entity, are now done away with because the church, as the Jew-Gentile people of God, has replaced that So the part of the law that still stands today is the moral law, and you see Jesus and the apostles appealing to the Ten Commandments on a fairly regular basis in their letters and in the Gospels, showing the timelessness of God's moral law. So that's just a quick note on the use of the law today and the three uses. All right, let's return to the flow of Exodus. So we've just gotten now to the end of the second part of Exodus where the Lord reveals his glorious lawgiver. And what do we see at the end of this section? The same thing we saw at the end of the first section. 
the revelation of God's glory. God shows his glory. And in chapter 24, at the end of this section, and I'll just read quickly verses 12 to 18, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And now in the first section, when Israel was delivered from Egypt, the glory of the Lord appeared as the saving presence of God. This time, the glory of the Lord appears as a devouring fire, of which the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament warns those Christians he is writing to, that our God is a consuming fire. And we have to approach God his way. Otherwise, we will be consumed. And the law indeed does consume us. And would consume us if it wasn't for our Lord who has saved us from the curse of the law so that we can boldly go before the Lord's presence And so that leads us then to the third and final section of Exodus, the third location, the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord is the God who dwells with his people. We take the idea of God dwelling with us so for granted, I think, in my experience. We just assume God's there when we want to talk to him. And he is there if we are his people. But we totally take that for granted. There's no reason why God would need to dwell with anyone. There's no reason why God would need to communicate to anyone. And in fact, many false religions, that's the picture of God. He is far off and cannot be accessible. And in Exodus, in the Old Testament, before the Spirit was poured out on God's people, where now the Spirit dwells in us, In this time, God dwelled in a location and in a place. Not that he needed to because the heavens could not even contain God. But God chose his special location to be the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting, the place where Israel would meet with God, the tabernacle. And then even more specifically, it would move into the Ark of the Covenant, which would be in the the Holy of Holies in the center of the the tent, the most holy place. And that is where God chose to dwell with his people. See, Moses is worried. He's being sent out, but he doesn't know who's going to go with me. And the Lord himself promises to go with him. 
And so through the tabernacle. And so the Lord gives instructions. So this last section of Exodus is all about the tabernacle. So first we find a series of instructions about the tabernacle in 25 and the chapters that come after that. Uh, And we learn about giving. So how the Israelites are going to need to provide to build the sanctuary. We'll learn about the Ark of the Covenant. Then you read about the table for bread, the golden lampstand, the tabernacle, the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, oil for the lamp, the priest garments, consecration of the priest, the altar of incense, uh, the census tax, the bronze basin, the anointing oil, just a whole list of overwhelming things. I think you hear that list, you're like, whoa, what happened? So basically, we're starting to learn, and we'll learn more of this next week in Leviticus, that... We worship God his way. And God is laying out all the things that he wants to have in the tabernacle that represent God and the way to God. And so there's all these things from lampstands to altars to basins and so forth, the ark, that are all there as part of the tabernacle. And all these instructions are given. There's even spiritual giftings of Oholiab and Bazalel. And then finally in the instructions is the Sabbath. What's interesting to me, of of all the commandments, if I asked you, what is the most important commandment? And you know the New Testament, so you could say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might your neighbor as yourself. Hopefully you'd get that. But in Exodus, the most important commandment is the Sabbath commandment which is kind of the ultimate expression in one way of loving the Lord, recognizing the the Lord is God, is setting apart that day. Uh, Turn to chapter 31. 31, and I'll read verses 12 to 18. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, this is just so striking to me, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign, in other words, this is a covenant sign. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days you shall shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest holy to the lord whoever does any work on the sabbath day shall be put to death therefore the people of israel shall keep the sabbath observing the sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever it is a sign forever between me and the people of israel that in six days the lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed when he gave to moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Still today, as we observe the Lord's Day, the New Testament Sabbath, it is the chief sign to the onlooking world that we are God's people. It's quite a strange thing. We could be golfing today, you know, or we could be doing a whole number of other things, but we come together to worship the Lord, to set it apart. And that goes all the way back to creation. Remember last week in Genesis, we talked about Genesis 1 being laid out in the framework of a week so that we would understand God's created order of all things 
Six days we work, and we the height of creation in our existence is to worship God and rest before him on the seventh day. And the Sabbath is the chief sign of God's created order that we gather on the Sabbath. Now as Christians today on the Lord's Day, is, it's referred to in the New Testament as a sign that God is our God and we are his people. After this, Israel, what do they do? This is just a great picture of us as people and as sheep. Do they go, yes, let's be faithful to the Lord. What do they do? They build an idol. They build a golden calf. They rebel against God. Like everyone else has idols. Why don't we get an idol? Let's, Aaron, make us an idol. And they take off all their jewelry and make a golden calf. And God's ready to wipe them out. And Moses intercedes for them. He intercedes for them. The first tablets are broken. He gets new tablets. The Lord renews the covenant. The glory of the Lord is reflected in Moses' face. And they get back to business and they build the tabernacle. And as we come then to the end of Exodus, the building of the tabernacle when it's all completed in the uh, in exodus it notes in chapter 40 again again that lord that moses did as was commanded by the lord as the lord commanded him that phrase repeats again and again and again so moses was faithful here and in verse 34 what do we see again at the end of this major section we see the revealing of god's glory we saw it at the Red Sea, we saw it on Mount Sinai, and now we see it here in the tabernacle, the glory of Yahweh. And in chapter 40, as this book concludes in verses 34 and following, it reads, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, And fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And thus ends the book of Exodus. But I want to end here with a meditation on the glory of the Lord. In this part of redemptive history, the Lord dwelt with his people by a moving tabernacle. Eventually, it's going to turn into a temple when Israel becomes a nation in the land of Canaan. But then the temple is going to be destroyed. And in the prophet Ezekiel shows the presence of Yahweh actually leaving the temple and going over the Mount of Olives, abandoning the land for a time. In the New Testament, though, as we saw, 
the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The real presence of God came not in a, an ark or in a tent or in a building, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And his message was not of a law that condemns, but of grace that would be given through him. And that's what John picks up. And we saw that in the series in John we just went through. But more than that, even as Moses and Israel were sent on a mission, God sends his people on a mission to make disciples of all nations. And what is the great promise in that? In Matthew 28, And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And when the Spirit is pulled out, now we ourselves become tabernacles, our own tent that is, our own body becomes a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God is with us. So whether you are here or in Uzbekistan or in the North Pole or the South Pole or New York City or the Nairobi Desert, God is with you. He is in you as his people and he will never leave you or forsake you till the day that he returns and we hear those words that we have longed to hear in the book of Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And in Revelation 21, as Revelation ties all the themes of the Bible together, we'll be here a lot in this series. I might not even need to preach Revelation. We will be in it so much throughout this series. But in chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And he says, I heard, and it's these words first spoken to Moses in Exodus 6, as we read today. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God was with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their No longer will we wander about in a desert. No longer will we wander about in cities where we feel like aliens and strangers, even if we were born here. But we will be with God face to face, world without end, and the new creation. For the land of Canaan itself is only prefiguring the whole creation as God's holy place for his people. We will dwell with him together, you and me, forever what a wonderful day it will be when the exodus finally comes to an end in the meantime we still have a journey to go on but thanks be to god who even more than a fiance or husband could do chose us determined the relationship made provision to save us when we failed our end of the relationship. Who never changes, who is the I am, what I am, who is the same God then as now, and will bring all his promises to pass when the Lord returns, and yet who didn't leave us without his presence now. That is 
Yahweh. That is the Lord whom we worship as our God. Every Lord's Day and every day in between. Amen.